Hello, I'm Patrick Capone. I'm the director of photography on Succession. Hi, I'm Christopher Knorr, director of photography on Succession. And this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Patrick Capone and Christopher Knorr, directors of photography for Succession Season 3. Uh, Patrick, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Quite you. welcome. Thank you for having us. Now, there's so much to talk about. This is one of my favorite shows for sure. I've seen all of season one, all of season two, and I think two episodes of season three. So I still have a bit to catch up on. Um, but I'm very excited to talk to you guys because uh, there's just a lot to discuss by way of lenses and lighting and filters and all of that good stuff. And of course, we'll get to it all. But before that, I just want to very quickly mention the sponsor for today's episode, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. And of course, encourage you to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Patrick, Chris, again, welcome to the show. What a great, you know, it's it's interesting. Secession kind of came in and surprised everybody. Um, you know, it, it was almost like a little bit of a sleeper hit at first. I think it took a few episodes, maybe even half a season of season one before people started saying, have you seen that show? Did you, have you seen that Secession <laughs> show yet? I feel like I started hearing about it midway through season one and wow, what a great show, what a great series and it just keeps getting better. Uh, Christopher, I'd like to start with you. What was your first involvement with the series? How, how did this kind of come off the ground for you, and how did you get started with it? Um, I guess uh, Pat got me involved, I believe. I'm not sure. Maybe or maybe not. You tell. You can jump in on that, Pat. Um, I'll take the credit. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I came in quite late. Um, I, I came in the middle of the um, first season uh, where a lot of things got established, and um, yeah, so basically, I, I, I started with number six with Andre, who was the DP on the pilot and the, I guess the first episode. So I teamed up with him and shot his first directorial um, debut on Succession. Um, so I had um, I had his influence, which really helped me, got me through it. And obviously, I was always um, communicating with Pat. And uh, you know, I think the first season, I think we were all growing. Uh, in terms of where it was all going to go with the camera work. And I think everything was just growing. So, uh. yeah. So you kind of came in midway through the first season. So Patrick, were you there from episode one, season one? No, I didn't start shooting until episode three. So, uh, all right. would, so in yeah. a series like this, kind of the look is established by who? Was it, was it one of those situations where there was a pilot and then they sold the pilot before the whole series um, got greenlit, or how did that work? Yes, Adam McKay directed the pilot. Uh, I had worked with Adam on uh, the big short, a little bit of second unit I did on that, uh, some other films. Uh, I knew the style that he was trying to do. Um, somehow I fell into a short list of names and uh, through the list... I love that. See, now that's that that's that East Coast uh, that I that is that East Coast like humbleness that I was talking about earlier <laughs> before we rolled. It's so funny. Like I, I, you're in New York right now and Chris, where are you? Are you in LA or New No, I'm in New York as well. You're in New York as well. I, I think there is something kind of there's a just a different feel to the East Coast DPs where 
It, it almost is kind of like this. Yeah, I just, I just sort of, I don't know how they ended up picking me. I just kind of like, it's just a different sort of vibe and a mood. And it, it works with me because I'm from Boston. So I kind of have a similar, <laughs> a similar kind mm-hmm. of feel to me as well. Um, but you come onto a show like this. The pilot's already established. You are then kind of taking it on and you sort of have a dual role. I mean, you have to support the pilot and make sure that you continue on the look, but you also want to infuse your own kind of look and feel into it. So uh, it seems like, Patrick, you were involved first before Chris, so I'll start with you. What was originally told to you about the way that this series is supposed to look? And then what did you do with that? We we were shown the pilot and we had conversations with Mark Mylod, who is the lead director uh, and producers, and Jesse Armstrong, who has this phenomenal track record of very low, not high-end style cinema, let's say. He had some, a lot of hits in England uh, I can't, um, that had this handheld kind of uh, ser- cinema verite. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Chris and I both said we wanted to take that and try and make it a little more cinema, which I think we both have. And we, I don't think we were disrespectful to that original pilot or, you know, we just, everybody was trying to move forward and see how we can make this a bit, you know, look a little better. Um, I'd like to talk specifically about the decision to be handheld and what that does to the story. What was it about this series, this story, kind of the, the, the way that the, um, the mood of it, I guess we'll say, that lended itself to handheld? Chris, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I think it's it, it creates a realism. I I I uh, compare it to like documentary filmmaking, and it's very observatory, and uh, uh, especially with the zooms and the longer lens. So you are like viewing from the outside a little bit, or a fly on the wall, as as we've said throughout the seasons. And um, but we're not always handheld, so you know that's uh, I think. That when coming into this, my one of my goals, and I think Pat had the same feeling, is we don't want it to f- always be that way, or else it's just going to feel like a gimmick. And to me, it's is building that the handheldness and the kinetic energy of the camera with the scripts and the characters for the each storyline, and then also giving it a rest or using breaking the language for a dramatic effect, and that was something. I think all of us, even Andre, was really into doing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess the handheld really, you know, reminds me of all those, uh, you know, working with Michelle Gondry, and he was all handheld. Um, you know, just kind of it, it frees the camera up too, so you have these off angles and in the night your traditional composed shots. Um, but then again, returning to it occasionally for a dramatic effect is is very powerful. I think so. So you get your scripts, and is it is it your decision as directors of photography to decide whether it's going to be handheld or something more kind of smooth on a slider or a, or a Dana dolly or static on sticks? Is it up to you at that point, or is that something in the director's notes? Um, for me, it's I basically work with the director and I break down the scenes with them and decide where, where does, what's the energy and the level of the camera per scene? Um, where when you work with Mark, Mark is, um, Pat's worked with Mark Mylard more, 
that that's been such an open uh, discussion. I've actually, I think I've worked with more newer directors. So I kind of sit them down and I have that talk and say, I really just want to break it down. You know, this is, you know, I, I don't want it just to be handheld for no reason. Or if it's handheld, there's a calm handheld. There's using prime lens handheld, which is a little more subtle. And then there's zoom handheld. And then there's, you know, we're on, on dollies, but it's a very loose camera, very long zoom. So it's very all over the place, especially when there's this uh, big scenes of all, all our cast and there's a lot of tension. It works really great. So it's, I kind of try to, I map it out first and then I kind of propose it to the director. So Patrick, for, for you, when you get a script, what is it, what, what is something like, what has to happen in the scene in order for you to say, that's a handheld scene versus, you know, that's maybe a static scene or something kind of softer with less movement? One of the first episodes I did uh, was with uh, Adam Arkin. And we were both new to the show at that time. And we did the big Thanksgiving Day scene. And we decided and we took the long lens look where you can give the operators freedom to grab across the table and down the table. I, that's one of my favorite iconic ways to shoot our, our scenes on succession. Chris did a phenomenal job with uh, bar on the floor and the, uh, the other shows with the big dinner scenes and the long lenses. The, The challenges of course, the directors want to see 360 of the room. So we need to top lighting or a scheme that accommodates that. But Mark and I sometimes will start a scene in one, in one style. And after the first take, we'll say neither one of us will feel that it's working mm. and we'll, we'll just, you know, toss it aside and start all over again. Mm. So there are those three types of styles. We have the long lens dollies. We have the handheld zooms. We have the handheld primes and we vary from those a little bit. But we try not to make it a gimmick. We try and really have it all story-oriented. And, uh, you know, we we both approach it during prep as to what we think each scene will be, but so much depends on location. And after the, you know, once they put it on their feet with Jesse and the cast, it becomes evident where the camera should be and uh, what style it should be. Now, something about the handheld that I'm noticing on this show is those uh, are those zooms where you kind of land on a punchline or something like that. The, the timing of that has to be so perfect. And I think to an untrained eye or even a trained eye, probably as you're watching the show, you're just enjoying the performances. You're watching it. You're observing it the way that the camera is. But if you look a little bit deeper into it, I'm thinking to myself, just the challenge in the logistics of hitting every one of those marks. You're handheld. People are moving around the space. I'm guessing they can be a little bit free with their motions, even though I'm sure there's some blocking. But the show seems to be as though the talent can move around in the space however they want. They're hitting punchlines, and you guys need to get your zooms just right. It seems like a very delicate balance to get everything to line up perfectly. And if that is true, I'd love to hear about that challenge and kind of how you overcome that. I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to our operators, um, Alan Pierce and Gregor Tavner. Um, but we also do a lot of takes, and actors are a lot of times doing different things. And I think what it is is after a take, we all talk about it and have a review. Like, okay, what moment do we miss if you miss something? So 
then we go on new missions with the operators of, okay, let's make sure we get this beat and that beat. Um, but uh, some scenes where it's at a dinner table is a little easier that way. But sometimes when people are up on their feet, I have to say every take could be totally different. So it gets really hard to even know that you missed a beat or not. And um, I mean, I think the beauty of the show is you can get that beat, but not necessarily the way you think is the perfect angle on it. And it could be the back of someone's face almost and barely see it. But that actually becomes more interesting than if you try to get it normally. And I know Gregor sometimes purposely doesn't look at the rehearsals because he just doesn't, he doesn't want to um, foresee the shot. He wants to find it maybe late or uh, witness it on his own rather than have it too rehearsed. Um, so I think it's just kind of doing a lot of takes. We do a lot of takes, I think. Do you feel the same, Patrick? Do you guys do tons of takes on your end? Yes, but first of all, what I want to say is sometimes what makes the, the, the beauty of Succession's photography is that it's not perfectly on time. And sometimes the focus shift is just a little late. Mm. Or sometimes you pan over in the middle of that line. It's those little mistakes that make it look like life and not a choreographed scene. Um, I'm sorry, what was your second question? Well, I, I was just, just more on that discussion about the challenges of hitting those beats perfectly. And it sounds like you just sort of let it kind of organically happen. You may not hit the beat the right. way that it was intended, but it just feels right. Well, you were talking about a lot of takes. Yes. One of the beauties of this show is we will do the entire scene, whether it's four pages or ten pages, from the beginning to the end, every take. Wow. We don't line up overs and singles. The actors don't very rarely have marks. They, it's liberating for them that yeah. they're not put into a box and they have to know where to be. Kieran will never tell you where he's going to be, nor will Jeremy. <laughs> and we, and it's a challenge for us. I love that us. reaction, it's Chris. <laughs> it is a challenge. Well, we're going to talk about or that. Or he'll walk in with a baseball cap you know, at the last minute. But it's that spontaneity. It's that... You don't do so many takes as you, and you don't do so many setups. You do, you do a lot of setups and maybe not so many takes because what in another film where you will say, okay, th let's give this another take number. We don't because everyone's always doing something different. Mm. You know, the director will chime in and say, you know what? Don't quite do that yet. I still have to get this. But at the end, the actors have a freebie and the camera crew has a freebie. And uh, it's amazing how much of that stuff makes it to the final cut. Does it drive you crazy as, you know, directors of photography? I know you're not necessarily operating, but does it drive you a little bit insane when the cast can be so free and the scenes are so varied from take to take? Um, Chris, I mean, you had that reaction just a couple of minutes ago. So, uh, what I mean, what sort of challenge does that pose to the cinematographers? Because I think a lot of people in our audience— you know, may, if they're doing documentary, maybe. Um, although, no, because they don't have takes in documentaries. I, I think a lot of people are, you know, don't have a situation where the takes are so varied and so different. So what what is that experience like for, for you? Um, you know, I have to say sometimes it's not a big deal because certain locations cater to, you know, aesthetic lighting all the time. Like like our, our Waystar set is pretty forgiving. It's beautiful daylight that comes in. And if they go dark, it looks beautiful. And if they, they're in the window light, it just, you know, it, it caters to that freedom. I sometimes, 
you really have to design a lighting scheme for like say like born floor a night moody scene where it's hard to uh give actors the freedom and still make it look moody um as that scene wanted to be so you really have to design a lighting scheme that kind of works for that um uh, especially when the actors have a lot of freedom when they're sitting at a table it comes becomes a little easier um but sometimes it's just you, the locations picked out by um you know everybody before i even get the script and then you just have to deal with it and it's always a challenge um and uh Sometimes I really hate it, but I end up walking away very rewarded because I it forced me to take new approaches that I would not have uh, thought of if I, you know, could do anything I want. You know, it really, really makes you, you know, really have to think it out because you know the actors are going to want freedom, and it's a like a a set that or a, a location that just it's really hard to do that. So. And it really helped me also not be afraid of letting them go dark because what else could I do anyway? So, you know, but you know, half the time when it does that, I, when I see the dailies, I'm like, wow, that's awesome actually. And it makes it, it gives it this visceral element to it that, you know, I probably would have lit it a little more uh, on a, a movie or something, but I, I just, it just works. So Patrick, do you kind of just have to go into this, almost like a documentary where it's like, yeah, I, I can plan as much as I, you know, you can only plan so much. And it just kind of is what it is sometimes. And that is the magic of it, letting the performances be what it is. Is that sort of the way that you approach these scenes? I do. But more importantly, there's an environment on our job where, you know, no one makes mistakes. And no one says, oh, why did you do that? Why did you pan there? Why is that person dark? You can't have that person's silhouette. That doesn't exist. And it starts with Jesse and it goes all the way down to the edit and the color transfer. No one says, you know, we might say, okay, well, that didn't work. But nobody will get scolded, let's say. I can, I can remember operating movies in the 90s where if the crosshair wasn't in the exact same place, you'd get publicly humiliated. Mm. I mean, this is a, a liberating environment for, I, th I don't, we're not, recreating the wheel here but i think it's a really interesting way to tell a story and i think it works very well and because everybody is on that same page you feel you're willing to take a chance you're willing to pan the camera over there and but we have operators that know composition and no lighting i mean they can slide their seat over just a little bit and create a light dark light dark situation if someone's not lit we don't have everyone's working and everyone has that great uh, aesthetic of what a good frame is. Yeah. It's amazing. So many people on our job, cast, camera, are very good still photographers. And we everybody always has cameras with them. And we always, they are really talented, great eyes. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ empowering filmmakers. And that's really what these guys do. They truly do empower filmmakers. But let me tell you how. When you go to MZ, you are faced with hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education that covers all the things that we need to know. Directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Now, of course, to give really good information, to, you know, to give really good training, 
online and really in, in life, you have to have good information, good courses, uh, but you also need really good educators. That combination is what MZ is all about. You know, you go there and you get amazing courses, like just some of the most recent ones. Advanced editing with DaVinci Resolve. And I know a lot of people out there are starting to edit in DaVinci Resolve. Of course, the art and technique of uh, film editing with Tom Cross, who edited La La Land, Whiplash, No Time to Die. Um, Indie Film Blueprint is a course that's basically a roadmap for how to plan, shoot, and sell your first indie feature. So that's what I'm talking about, like courses that we really all need to be learning. And craft, you know, we're, we're honing our crafts by working with MZET and going to their website and learning from their educators. And what a roster of educators. I'm talking Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, Tom Cross, like I mentioned before. And so I strongly encourage you to go check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZED, M-Z-E-D. And here's a little tip. Yes, you can buy individual courses, but what my recommendation is, is to become an MZ Pro member because when you do, you have access to everything on the site, all of it. But regardless of what you buy, you get 20% off by using the coupon code GCS20 at uh, uh, checkout, GCS20. So check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, MZ, M-Z-E-D, MZ, empowering filmmakers. Let's talk about the makeup of your camera department. And Patrick, we'll start with you. Um, how many cameras do you have rolling and how are you generally orienting them in the space? Always have two, maybe one or two episode days per episode. We'll have three, but we always have two. And when we do our dolly situation, sometimes we'll make an L. So we'll, we'll create a dolly left to right, and then we'll pick an angle on the other side and we'll get most of that. And then we'll flip to the other side with mock, which is really interesting. And I, tried to bring this on to other jobs. We do our close-ups first. We get the performance first. We don't worry about, well, we have to create the look for the master. We get all the performance first. The actors love it. Every The, the operators love it. And then after we feel we have the scene, we drop back and do some wide shots and bringing people in or something like that. We don't waste the actor's energy uh, doing that. Also, we don't work very late nights. We do sometimes, but very rarely. We try and do uh, day for night interiors when we can. We just try and schedule stuff because no one's best work is at 3 a.m. in the morning. Mm. You know, So it's a whole production line that's the producers are on that page, the cast is on that page, and everybody else is too. So it, it's very difficult to go to another job sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, just speaking to you for a few minutes now here, it seems like multiple times you've gone back to this idea of kind of the, the experience on set among the crew and the producers and the cast and everything. It seems you're talking a lot about kind of the, the vibe on set, like the, the, the way that you're being treated on set, which it's certainly something to be paying attention to, but it's not so often that the DPs that come on the show necessarily talk about that. And I think, that that is an important thing, especially now with all of the IATC strike. Well, it seems to have been mitigated, but uh, the, the conversations that were revolving around the IATC potential strike just a month ago, a couple weeks ago, was about this idea of treatment of you know the 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 crews and the and all all these departments. So it's interesting to hear you say that succession is run in a way that makes you 
as a camera operator and director of photography feel like it's a respectful schedule. Do you feel the same way, Chris? On, Absolutely. For, for I mean, they're, they're very uh, aware of our hours and consideration of any inconveniences. And uh, I couldn't think of the negativeness about it. It's just awesome. I want to talk a little bit more about your camera department. And Chris, just to, I'm curious about your experience here. So Patrick discussed that L-shaped for the, for the um, dolly shots. When you're doing your handheld, are you still rolling with two cameras? Do you bring in that third for your own episodes? Um, no, it's, it's, it all depends on the, the, the nature of the scene. I mean, we have, especially last season, I had many scenes with every cast member in it. And they're all over the place. And so we were able to use three cameras a lot. Um, but it, it really it depends on what the script has in it, what dictates whether I have three cameras or two cameras. But uh, I do a very similar thing uh, with, you know, you cover half a direction with, you know, cameras if you're on dollies or whether it's handheld. And then you, you make a big flip to the other side. Or I actually, this last season, I had to do both sides uh i had everyone in the whole scene but at the last second jeremy wanted to do his close-up first and but so did everyone else and they were like opposing each other and i just looked at the director i was like now what do i do okay fine and we just ended up just cross shooting it um and it worked out fine <laughs> it was like you know it was kind of crazy but it, it worked out fine and again i had a, a location that Cater to shooting multiple directions without, you know, sacrifice, um, which is very important to me. Well, I just want to hit one more note about the third camera. Yeah. Uh, we had, when we have two cameras handheld or the long lens, they'll film each other all the time. They'll see each other. A handheld operator will walk in front of the other camera. Mm. But we know that there's just going to repo. So we had a situation when we were in Italy, and uh, we had three cameras. And we're saying, something's not right. Something's just not right here. And we decided to just have the third camera sit down for a while. And it enabled the other two cameras to physically move around like they do on their butt dollies. Mm -hmm. So even though a lot of times the third camera is really good and you're getting all your performances, that was one example where it actually got in the way. And both the director and I realized it at the same time. Huh. And we, we the two other operators were able to, they had a six feet to move instead of only three without being restrained by another butt dolly next to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is the camera package that you're using on the show? So we have, uh, I know we have Leica Primes. We use the yes. Sumalux Primes, um, which is, you know, again, a decision if we want to go prime mode because it kind of limits any kind of uh, kinetic energy, I think, which is great. Or if we're in really low light levels, sometimes I'll try to push for that. Um, and then we have, um, you know, Optimo zooms, and we have uh, new handheld zooms, I believe. Um, yeah. And then occasionally I'll, I'll, we'll order, or at least, uh, you know, we both have ordered like a super long, long, like 150 to 600 or 1,000 millimeter lens, uh, which looks awesome sometimes. You know, we spend a lot of time at airports, our Tarmacs, and that lens looks fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Why? And. Uh, why? Because yeah, like you what, what, can really compress and get on a dolly and move 
and have that whole background shifting behind you and shallow depth of field. It just adds, you're not just sitting on a tarmac. You're making it much more graphic. You can get low. You can put the actors up against the skyline. The compression really really helps with open space. There's not much in the background anyway. How did the decision get made to shoot film? Was it your decision or did that just come down from the pilot? I think it was Adam. I would say Adam McKay. Yeah, Adam McKay. That's a big decision. You know, there's a lot of cost implications with that. There's some logistical challenges. It's, you know, it's a different way of working were i'm guessing the two of you sounds like you're you were excited about being able to shoot the series on film what does it i guess what does it allow you to do i mean i know a lot of the people in our audience are probably very familiar with shooting digital and they know the benefits of that what are some of the benefits of film for a project like this and chris we'll start with you um i would say that i mean the biggest benefit for me is um the way it handles the highlights um you you can shoot a lot of times on digital or even also on film, but like you're trying to stay away from like hard sunlight hitting a face and somehow the film absorbs that and handles that so much more elegantly than digital. It kind of gets very electronic. I mean, I have to say it's gotten much better lately, but still film somehow handles these highlights and these, the ranges of, I could have the sun blasting outside and be shooting inside and that could be five stops overexposed. And it looks amazing, and it and it holds detail. Where in digital, it pretty much loses it um, pretty immediately. And I imagine, I imagine Patrick, the, the name of the game on Succession is giving the actors the freedom to move around. So it kind of means you guys need to be as nimble as possible. Is film allowing you to do that? Is it better suited for a show like this? I think so. For, we shoot three perfs, so we get a little extra time. But what I one of the things that several of us have commented on, it's much more disciplined. When you hit the slate, everybody's concentrating, and you know you have 10 minutes or 12 minutes. Digital, people go on for a half hour, people come in and reset props, actors get taught how to act by people walking in on stage, and people are still rolling. The boom man has to hold it, the boom person has to hold a boom for 30 minutes. This is a well-disciplined, here's the slate, here we go, we're shooting film. And it's respected. And the look of it is just amazing. Yeah. The, the, the highlights, the women, the, you know, the, the slower film stock. I mean, I, you know, we shoot in high sun. You know, we don't have places to put fly swatters. There's just not room or time in our style. And uh, the film is amazing. Let's talk more about the lighting. Now, I imagine, you know, in... in in this show, in Succession, you are, once again, allowing the talent to sort of move about where they want to. You never quite know where they're going to be or sometimes even what they're going to wear. <laughs> it sounds like sometimes they'll have a hat on. Um, so lighting-wise, I'm guessing you have to light pretty much 360, right? I mean, do your environments have to be able to be shot from anywhere at any time? And uh, Pat, we'll start with you. Sometimes you can narrow it down with Mark to 260 degrees. But... You know, a lot of our big locations, we come either it's natural daylight or we come up with these large schemes or we're forced to do top light. Not forced to. I mean, uh, some of my favorite scenes have been the top light situations, whether it be balloons or things coming down onto a dining room table. But we try very much to give the actors and the director as much freedom as, as they can. I mean, there is a, when we turn around, we do do a relight, you know, but 
there's some scenes that are literally 360 degrees. And they love to do things at dusk. They write even they they'll write an evening eight page scene, and I'll say, okay, evening is that the sun is up, that has gone down, is it dark yet? And nobody wants to commit, but it's usually the transition of of uh, magic hour to complete darkness. Yeah, and it's that's the biggest challenge. Chris, can you talk to us about one of those challenges? Um, about you know not necessarily being able to maybe light exactly the way that you want, leaving some room for, um, you know, inconsistencies, I guess, in, in the environments. Can you point us to a, to a moment that you had to deal with and how you overcame it? Mm, you might have to come back to me on that because I'm drawing a blank. But I mean, I have to say, like, I, I try to, especially in more contained scenes, try to, like, you know, be able to light it in a normal way. I mean, I realize if I put a, a, a light in the corner of the room, the actors probably won't go and stand right in front of it. Um, so sometimes by putting a piece of equipment in the space, they know that's not the spot to stand in front of or else they won't get photographed. You know, so, um, but, you know, it's always a challenge. I'm going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's always a challenge. If there's something that I really have a problem with and it's not like every cast member and it's a smaller scene, I will say, hey, I, I can only do this or that. Or else I just don't know what, you know, sometimes there's no solution or I just, I, I just figure it out. Um, it's more sometimes on, again, the low lighting dramatic scenes. It's sometimes hard for things to constantly change. So sometimes I chase it with lighting, you know, I'll have a very simple lighting scheme where it's just like maybe one light, or even if it's just a bounce card, but depending as, as the actors change it, if it could be a two hand or something. I will constantly chase it with the lighting subtly without slowing things down, um, you know, like from take to take even, because it's changing from take to take. So um, I, I don't know if this is good or not, but I've, in the last two seasons, I've learned to rely a lot on our final colorist. And I know with Sam Daly, I know that I can, I'll over, if I need to, I'll just make it a little brighter. I can always bring it down, you know, and you try not to, get caught. And, um, but you use all the tools in the toolbox. It's, it's really, you, you go to work scratching your head sometimes and you say, how are we going to do this one? I mean, uh, just to add to that, I mean, I just did a, my last episode was a big party sequence. And again, it's like I had a choice of making it super moody or that's the way it wanted to feel. But I, I had to overlight it a little bit, which is not necessarily the way I d usually do it. Um, but I knew I can bring it down later, and Sam you know, brought it way down. And even Jesse had concerns, like, this is too bright. And I said, I, I, it's like there was all this the sibling fighting all in this space, but it wanted to be really moody. And he wanted it darker and darker. At one point, we turned all the lights out. He goes, yeah, this is how I want it. And I said, well, it's not gonna, <laughs> if I film it like this, it's not going to look like this. I said, we'll just bring it down later. And he, he loved it. It looked great, but I had to like actually overlight it more than I would normally just to give the actors that freedom to change it up from take to take. And it was one of those scenes where you knew they were going to. Some of the scenes, you know, they're not really going to change it too much unless it's Jeremy. You know, <laughs> That's been brought up a couple times now, Chris. Is Jeremy kind of... No Is Jeremy kind of known for sort of giving you, you know, keeping you guys on your toes, giving you something different? Oh yeah, but so so does Karen. I mean, he's a method actor, and he doesn't want to show us. He doesn't want to show us cards, and not because he's 
he he doesn't know sometimes what either one know what they're going to do or they don't want to wa- Jeremy it's probably more he doesn't want to waste it and Kieran's like I haven't figured it out yet <laughs> you know but an interesting part about before we talked about equipment yeah everybody is so used to these days of what's on the monitor is what you're going to get yeah because it's uh, Alexa's or digital or whatever our taps are horrible mm. And directors will look at me and say, I don't see the outside. I How, this is, what are you talking? I go, just relax. And Kevin had a great line. We, he did one of the DGA things. And he said, you know, you're watching these monitors all day long and you go home and watch dailies and it's a gift to see what it really looks like. And both Chris and I, I mean, I use my, my monitors pretty much just for composition and what the operators are doing. Because in our head, we have to know what the film is doing. And I mean, because we both came up in film, uh, I love it. I mean, you know, it just, you know, we have a meter in our hand. We're not in the DIT tent where, you know, I wear headsets and uh, speak to the operators usually. But just to be able to be part of the process on the set is another great advantage of film. But I do have the problem of directors constantly, like, especially ones that have not worked a film, they'll look at a light bulb and a light bulb on the video taps on film will explode. And they're like, oh, those are too bright. I'm like, please don't judge the lighting. I almost have to put signs up saying don't judge lighting on these apps because <laughs> they're so used to seeing a close uh, image that's so close to the final product. And here it's like the worst possible image you can imagine. How do you sort of navigate that conversation when the director is looking at the monitor and saying, I don't, what am I even looking at? I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm seeing here. I mean. It's the first couple of days of an episode. Mm. They see Daly, a new director. Yeah. Our team knows what's going on. And they understand that after a couple of days, they see the dailies and they go, ah, you know, I know what you're talking. And I always say it'll look better. It'll even look better before it's It's a lot of trust. I mean, that's how it's it a used lot of to trust. be, but now it's like, you know, I, I either that or I have my ACs. Like if they say, oh, it looks too bright, I go to the ACs and darken their monitor a little bit <laughs> or vice <laughs> versa. It's too dark. Right. Just you know, it. sometimes uh, I, I don't know if Chris does this. I have a Fuji still camera that has a very good sensor on it. And sometimes I'll just use it for light references for fill and this, this and that. And if they look at the still on my digital I say it looks. It's going to look more like that than what you're seeing on that monitor. Okay, I want to talk about something that I think is um, kind of important for the characters in the show, for all of them, really. But Succession has this balance between power and vulnerability, and I think that a lot of the characters there they they know they're powerful people, but they also are exposed to extreme vulnerability and kind of fear in a lot of these moments because they may lose their power. And you can really kind of watch them as they are afraid of losing power. I'm curious, is there something in the way that you film characters that will support a moment when they need to be powerful or support a moment where they need to be vulnerable? Is there something you do differently? And um, let's start, Patrick, with you on how you approach those two kind of feelings within the season. Well, it's very, it's very innate the way the camera is used. You know, I did a lot of work with, I used to uh, be a camera assistant for Jonathan Demi and Declan Quinn, and they would use the camera and let that frame make a person vulnerable. Mm. The height of the camera, the lens you choose, 
how you isolate them, all of that. And it's instinct. And our operators get it. And Chris gets it that we know. Can I describe it to you? I don't know. But we do know. And we will just say, let's do our iconic piece for this. I mean, just I love having the camera behind a person walking away. You know, even, you know, uh, Jeremy leaving the uh, press conference in episode one. Yeah. I mean, in, in Hollywood movie, they'll about. say, where's the close-up? Where's the close-up? You, know, you don't have to be have a close-up. It's everything around him. So that vulnerability of his environment. And we also, we always tell ourselves that millionaires, this group of people, millionaires, they don't know how lucky they have it. They don't realize how plush their surroundings are. And more importantly, they just think, they can control everything. So when we come upon bad weather, we never say, let's go to a cover set. They have to walk from a car to a building in the rain. You know what? All billionaires have to walk in the rain wow. and we'll shoot it in the rain. And, and we just try whenever we can, we uh, make them vulnerable to nature. That's interesting. Chris, any thoughts on this topic? Uh, you know, I mean, I try to find, especially when people are vulnerable I try to make them look small in the frame. So sometimes I'll pick an isolated moment where I'll make Jeremy or Logan, you know, small. Again, changing the film language at those moments really works where all of a sudden now you're still, you know, not moving and small. Um, I, I really like uh, that. And, um, you know, it's also trying to, I always say to my, my newer directors, I say, you know, our scripts are very fat. So I say, the ending might not be the ending. So pick out of this script, pick three different endings because there's a good chance that the ending that's in the script is not going to be that ending. So I say, and if we want to plan a little bit for it, then we sometimes will pay more attention to maybe the second to last dramatic vulnerable scene. Also, you know, as if it's the ending, you know. You mean when you say the ending may not be the ending, you're saying that the editor may... Or the director may decide to cut the scene short? I mean, I think our scripts are very fat. So I say a lot of scenes don't live. So I've, yeah, I have yeah. several episodes where the ending is slightly different than what's on the page. And we, we have to be very careful because scenes are taken out and then they're referred to later on. Mm. And the writers and we all are very conscious of was that taken out? Is that going to be in? And sometimes we don't know until we get the lock and we're done. We've wrapped. And they have to finagle some things like that. Wow. So you've been, you've both been involved in all three seasons. Um, now for season three, there is kind of a, at least at the beginning, I'm only two episodes in, but there's a shift in season three because Kendall's character now is in a war basically with his father. So all throughout season two, we kind of saw this softer side of Kendall, this vulnerable side of Kendall. In season three, we're seeing that killer that his father was really trying to inspire. And how does the cinematography change to kind of reflect that new, different Kendall? Yeah, I don't know if we consciously made a change. So much of it happens in the words and the performance. And we just... That day, that scene, what weight do we think it needs? Does it need, and, and like Chris was saying, which is a very good point, if we didn't do the quiet dolly shots, the other handheld 
they wouldn't look as good if there wasn't the other handheld uh, before it or after it. Mm. It's that contradiction. It's that comparison between the two styles, three styles, that uh, kind of puts a little accent on it. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think I went in and said we're going to do anything much different. We did a few technical things different this year. We tried a video wall. We tried uh, some different, you know, LEDs have become phenomenal that we can, when you, when you think of how quick we can change things on the fly during a take that you couldn't do five years ago. I mean, there's, our gaffers have iPads, and we can control as people come around. It's LEDs are the greatest invention since Steadicam, mm. I think. Well, that video wall, are you talking about like that sort of green screen replacement video screen where you sort of have the It was something like that. You know, outside of airplanes, we decided we wanted to have real skies. Um, we had a shoot because of the pandemic and not being able to travel. We had to shoot the Sarajevo Hotel in Westchester. Okay. But the airport outside that night, that's all a video wall. Ah. Uh, that actually Chris did the, the plates for it. So, yeah, Chris did the plates for that. And we, and we, yeah, and we, we go back and forth like this all the time. You know, I'm prepping, they need something, we run over there. It's, literally a team. Well, that's something I wanted to ask because we very rarely get the opportunity to have multiple um, directors of photography that work on the same show together in, in one conversation here. So I want to take this opportunity to discuss exactly how it is that you work together. So can you explain for us, Chris, the way that you work together? Like, are you are you, are you working together alongside each other in each episode, or are you splitting episodes up, or how does that work? Uh, I mean, I think our episodes and our directors are individuals, but I think we communicate in terms of where we're going with things, and also, you know, just logistics, because, you know, Pat will be shooting a set that I will have to shoot after that, so what were the problems, what were the issues? Uh, I mean, we have a great communication, so it just, you know, facilitates... Uh, any of us getting burnt. Um, so it's kind of, you know, watching out for each other. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Even, even, even the logistics of it. So we have to do a tech scout. So I have to tech scout while he's shooting. So we try and pick the best days that he isn't relying so much on his gaffer and grip where the seconds can bump up. And I'll go to production. I'll say, you know what? Wednesday's the best day to tech because we're not disturbing Chris and vice versa. And we juggle those days all the time. And we're always in communication. Like we had uh, Kendall's apartment. He had to put a huge uh, um, uh, overhead lighting uh, rig up. So I said, okay, so if we go in first, we could do our day stuff, let him build it, and it can sit up there. And this way we didn't have to have production. I, sh You know, one person shoots, then we need a day's rigging. So we all kind of compromise a little bit because the day stuff – I just stayed away from the ceiling and, and the riggers were able to satisfy. He had a very big night scene there. And sometimes if we get a location, we don't, it's very difficult to get into like Hudson yards. It could take like three hours. So production is very smart. They'll have people either go in on a Sunday or we'll wrap very early and have people load in the day before. So to balance that, we make sure that we can uh, cross board that location and, you know, we figure it out. And, 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 of course, the aesthetics of it. You know, we always have, like we're talking about right now, we talk about all the time. Mm. You know? And it's also translated through our crew to us. 
It's like, be like, well, Chris said this. <laughs> and like, you know, and we get it, you know, because we're all friends. We've known each other so long. Yeah. Do you have separate crews? No. So you're using no. the same crew. You're just one's prepping while the other is shooting. Well, we have, a, we have riggers, but, but the shooting crew is always and we always shooting. have our own ADs. You know? Yes, and we have our own ADs and script supervisors. Great, great. Oh, I, I, I think that's just so interesting. And you guys clearly work together very, very well. Um, I mean, the show is fantastic. I love it. And I cannot wait to dig more into it as the episodes are being released. Um, my last question for both of you, and, and uh, Chris, I'll start with you. What would you say is the most challenging scene that you had to shoot in, could be in any of all the three seasons? Um, but I'm curious about what, what was the most challenging scene and how did you overcome that challenge? I mean, I have to say there's so many challenging scenes. Um, but I have to go back to what Pat was saying about uh, a sunset scene. I had to do a very dramatic sunset scene in his apartment. Um, with a, the, I'm sorry, Ken, Kendall's, Kendall's apartment at sunset. Yeah. And um, I realized anytime I've done sunset scenes, also no one's in a rush but me. Because I'm like, oh, we got to get the light. And they're just like, you know, the actors just kind of meander out, you know, all right. And no one's in a rush. And so I'm like, guys, I'm about, we're all we're going to go home soon. It's going to be pitch black in two minutes. And no, one, no one's in a rush but me. I'm like, like pacing. And, and it, it, that's the most challenging or maybe more frustrating, but also challenging. Because I, I, I knew, you know. It wasn't a very long scene, but it was a very dramatic scene. And also, you know, as you lose the light, you constantly have to balance your lighting. So you have to constantly be resetting your levels because the light outside is constantly changing. And to me, that's the most challenging and nerve-wracking. Um, I mean, I think also going into just dealing these big scenes with all the cast and giving them the freedom overall is extremely just challenging. Um, but I love it much as it's a challenge you know i can tell patrick same question can you can you point us to a moment a scene uh, uh well i think it would have to be the car accident scene uh season one mm. you know it was shot of uh, three or four different locations four different nights uh underwater you know there's a whole sequence underwater which was challenging yeah. on film uh there was some visual effects we don't do visual effects and we had some visual effects shots and just the, the the journey back to the castle, lighting with fireworks, and it was uh, yeah, it was it was all hands on deck, but it worked. It I worked. Imagine. Well, Patrick Capone <laughs> and Chris North, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. The show is Succession. It is awesome. If you haven't seen it, but I know you all have watching this episode now, but it's on HBO, so check it out for yourself if you haven't. And if you have, watch it again. Why not? It's fantastic. And now that you know a little bit of the inside scoop as to how the show was filmed, you'll appreciate it even more. So thanks, guys, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. You've been fun to speak with. Thanks, thanks man. Thank you. Good to see you, Pat. <laughs> All right, I want to thank Patrick Capone and Christopher Knorr, directors of photography for Succession, season three. Great to talk to, and the show is awesome, so please check it out and let us know what you think of this episode. Of course, I also want to thank Connor Crosby, our producer. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And encourage you all to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app as well. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to know what's going on with me, you can follow me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.